If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Ryan McClanahan Show, episode 631. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B R I O N McClanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you the free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com or go to the support tab at brianmclanahan.com or click on the shop tab at brianmclanahan.com. All great ways to support the show. But as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. Share the podcast around on social media. Send me those show requests. Do all you can to get engaged with the show and to let people know you love it. That's how we grow the audience. That's how we get more people thinking about real federalism and all these fun things we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks. We're going to take a, a slight break from that um, and talk about this new uh, Harvard review that came out. And when I say that, it's not not their uh, not their literary journal, but it's a report by Harvard University on how uh, it's their mea culpa for their role in slavery in America. And um, I, I want to talk about this because the. The left, in some ways, is going bonkers over this. And what I mean by that is that this is, oh, yes, this is so good. Harvard, I mean, this is just so good. Nobody knew about this stuff. Well, I mean, if they've been paying to uh, paying attention to just about anything that we've done, for example, at the Abbeville Institute for several years, we've talked about this, right? What is the North's role in the institution of slavery? That's what this is about. There was actually a really interesting book published in the early 2000s, complicity uh, that went into this in great detail. And of course, there's been several times that Southerners discussed Northern involvement in the process. One of the things that's interesting in that book, Complicity, there's a chapter in that about Patty Cannon. I, of course, I grew up in Delaware, and uh, Patty Cannon uh, is one of these notorious figures in Delaware history. She was a kidnapper. She was a slave catcher. What's interesting about that is that the mayor of Philadelphia, and um, you look at some of the northern states there, were trying to figure out how to how to catch this slave catching ring from Delaware slash Maryland. And you know who was involved in that? Representatives from Alabama and Mississippi, because you see these southern states did not want to be charged or blamed with kidnapping. They weren't interested in capturing free black Americans and, and putting them into slavery. No, they understood the issue. This is in the 1820s, by the way. We're not talking about the 1850s when people would say, well, Southerners were generally trying to have a better, uh, better view of themselves for the rest of the world. You know, when you look at um, you know, 12 Years a Slave, and Solomon Northrop, and you look at that particular situation, what happened? Well, eventually, when the state of Louisiana figured out that Northrop was uh, a free black, he was a free man, they immediately freed him. 
because that was not something they were going to do. They, they, I mean, this was all done under the under the radar of the government. When the government figured this out, he was freed. And the people that they tried to catch were the slave catchers. The slave catchers, those that uh, would kidnap people, this was the most awful profession in America, without a question. And so the thing I'll say about that, though, is that, you know, you are in Maryland, Delaware. These are slave states. But um, you had certainly the Southern interest in ensuring that free people remain free and were not put back into bondage because they knew that was a violation of human rights, right? So, I mean, the, the whole situation is complex, more complex than what people will often, I mean, these very simple caricatures. So the thing that I do, I mean, look, it's great that Harvard University has come out and said, hey, you know what was going on in Harvard? You know what was going on in the North? Yeah, we were involved in slavery. They don't get into probably as much detail uh, as they need to, but certainly... Um, this is interesting. We actually had a piece at the Abbeville Institute this week on this very topic. But this is from CNN.com, and I wanted to cover this. It's an opinion piece by Peniel Joseph. And Peniel Joseph is um, someone who is considered a leading scholar on these particular issues. He, I think he teaches in Texas. But anyways, um, he is someone that's uh, you know well, highly regarded among uh, CRT people, among uh, this, uh, you know, kind of the the woke crowd, it's it's uh, you know Joseph is in that group. So he says a Harvard University report casts new light on how slavery helped forge one of America's most prestigious universities, and offers some hope for a path toward uh, repairing the deep wounds from the peculiar institution institution that remain today. Now the question I have for all of this. And I know this is often you know said. Well, I mean, slavery has produced a severe legacy. And, of course, the left tries to do that. They try to attach anything back to the institution of slavery, and you know, even where, where people are settled, and you have food deserts, and all these different things that go on. But the fact that, that Dr. Joseph is in the position that he's in, asks, I mean, it raises the question, what is the a deep wound that you are feeling about the institution today? You are a prestigious scholar. And I'm going to get into what's going to happen here with, the, with what Harvard is doing and who's going to benefit from this. You're a prestigious scholar. You've written several books. You are, uh, you're considered to be uh, you know, someone that people want to hear about and talk to. You do well for yourself. You've got money. What is the deep wound that you are facing in society? I mean... Or the, or the uh, people that live in Appalachia, the white people that live in Appalachia that are addicted to all kinds of nasty drugs, meth, and uh, the uh, horrible you know, synthetic opioids and other things. Are these people, uh, is that because of slavery that this is going on? I mean, come on. Eventually, you have to start saying there has to be some personal responsibility and you have to take account for that in society. No matter what race you are or group you are, you are the person that determines your life. You have to have some you have to have some ownership in what happens in your life. And of course there are always obstacles for everybody. Nobody's going to say that. And no one's going to say that there have been situations for different peoples in different times and yes for black Americans that have been hard to overcome. But we live in an environment now in a society that is willing to over to to accept just about anything. Willing to accept just about anything. So you determine your life not some institution from 150 years ago, right, or more. 
At a moment when dozens of states have passed bills making it illegal for public schools to learn, teach, or discuss the deep history of slavery and racial injustice in America. That's, that's, not, that's not true. They haven't done that. That's, that's a misnomer. That's misrepresentation of what they're doing. No one's going to say you can't teach slavery or you can't teach uh, what's happened in terms of race relations in America. No one's saying that at all. What they're saying is you can't teach that white people are devils and you can't teach that uh, there is uh, some type of structural racism in America. You can talk about racism, but you can't teach that it's structurally racist, that it was ingrained in the system, and that the only thing that's going to be white people are bad across the board. You just can't teach that. But certainly you can teach slavery. In fact, we should teach a comprehensive view of slavery. There are white slaves in America. There are Indian slaves in America. There are black slaves in America. The institution was stretched across the entire uh, North American continent when the United States was founded. And even some of these New Englanders were running slave plantations in the Caribbean. Of course, you can teach these things. It's, it's done all the time. Anybody that is a historian is going to talk about this. Yeah, these things went on. What you're not going to do is make a weapon out of it, though, and make certain groups feel terrible about something they had no role in. No one sitting in America today owned a slave. In 1860, no one. No one sitting in America today was a slave in 1860. So what are you actually doing when you start bringing this stuff up in a way that's designed to create a political agenda? Is you're actually deepening the wounds. You're creating the environment that's going to create the conflict and the angst. You see, if we're talking about real reconciliation, then we talk about not just that, but all the other things that go along with it, all the, all the uh, interested parties in trying to reconcile the situation. We talk about common things and not these things that are negative as much. He says, The Harvard report stands out as a breath of fresh air in the vast ocean of intolerance, fear, and falsehoods. Again, uh, I pointed this out in um, something that I wrote about how when they've done polls um, in terms of American heroes, when you go to wider areas of North America in the United States, in places like Indiana, right, uh, where there are, I mean, you get out of the South and you start where, where you have uh, fewer black Americans, you'll find that in these areas, these pockets of white America are more willing to talk about black Americans as heroes than in parts of the United States where you have more black Americans. It's amazing. So to say that America is structurally racist is not really to look at the entire situation. It's to gain political points, which is exactly what's going to happen out of this. Appropriately titled Harvard, the Legacy of Slavery, the 134-page document illustrates the depth and breadth of slavery in the making of the university. Written by a committee of prestigious scholars and chaired by the renowned historian, legal scholar, and dean of the Radcliffe Institute, Tomiko Brown-Nagin, the report's findings have been accepted by Harvard Univers University President Larry Bacow, and he released a letter on behalf of the school's leadership outlining his commitment to $100 million dollars dedicated to rectifying past wrongs tied to the university's immoral but economically profit, profitable relationship to slavery. <laughs> $100 million. So who's going to benefit from that? Well, people like Peniel Joseph. I mean, smiling all the way to the bank. 
The report calls for the money to be used in multiple ways to create monuments and memorials to the enslaved people who once worked at Harvard. Okay. I mean, that's fine. No, fine. Do that. To implement, to implement a curriculum that can convey the his, this history to students, scholars, and the wider public. Um, I mean, look, some of this is already being done. But again, who's going to benefit from that? Well, people that are going to make money as curriculum designers. People as consultants in this. They're going to make a lot of money. There's a tremendous amount of money to be made in these things. It's always, Some of this has been exposed where you have these speakers go out and the amount of money they charge. And, uh, it's a racket, right? It's a hustle. And this is exactly what these, this money is going to be used for more than anything else. To start an exchange program between students at Harvard and historically black colleges and universities and to build partnerships that uplift schools in the Caribbean and the American in the American South. Well, wait a second here. To uplift schools. What does that even mean in the American South? Wait a second. So you're saying that the real problem is the American South? Hmm. But this is about Harvard. And don't every doesn't every southern university already have a southern studies program? The point being that they're going to talk about slavery incessantly? Of course. This is already the case. So who, again, who is going to benefit from this $100 million? Well, people that are invested in this particular agenda. Those latter locations matter. And this is what, this is what Peniel Joseph says. Those latter locations, the Caribbean and the American South, they matter. You see, the South is really the problem. Those latter locations matter. Both acknowledge the origins of the profits made by white elites at Harvard and elsewhere, extracted from the lives and labor of black people, then defined as a species of property. Well, again, this is this is uh, this is incendiary language. But as um, Marshall DeRosa is doing right now, and of course we've got a lecture at the institute on this, uh, two lectures from the last summer school. Uh, slaves were not defined as species of property when they went to court. They were people with rights. And that was clearly shown in court. Part of the endowment will be used to assist tribal colleges and to trace the lineage of the more than 70 enslaved black people owned by slavers with deep and intimate ties to past Harvard presidents and affiliated clergy and politicians. The university is committed to deeply meaningful and sustained remedies that will endure in perpetuity, Brown Nagin told the New York Times. The report does not mention reparations, and in the same interview with the Times, Brown Nagin observed of reparations that it means different things to different people. So fixating on that term, I think, can be counterproductive. Uh, of course, because they know it's not politically popular. But that's what they're setting up for here, because, you know, you've got these people that were suffering, well, then you got to pay their descendants money, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, Assist tribal colleges. Well, we're not some of these tribal colleges. Let me back up for that for a second. We're not some of these tribal colleges. Uh, the people that then they own slaves too. I mean, what's going to happen there? Are you going to are you going to uh, say the Cherokee and the Choctaw and the Chickasaw and the Creek? You're not going to say that. I mean, do they need to pay some kind of reparations? Are you going to go after their situation? Or you know, even you had slave uh, slave owning tribes in in the North too. I mean, look, slavery was as much a part of their life as it was anything else. Are you going to are you going to make them pay reparations? I mean, I don't know. What are you going to do? The promised endowments proposed remedies, when implemented, will arrive too late for some descendants of enslaved Black folk at Harvard who have lived and toiled in Boston. Many of them unaware of their connection with that area when this 
August institution fattened its coffers with wealth created from the human wreckage of subjugated black people. Well, again, how did those black people get here to begin with originally? It was because of black people in Africa. I mean, this is, this is the Thornton book uh, on the African trade. Look, all this stuff needs to be brought out. I mean, again, the language of this is incendiary, but it's stupid because it doesn't take into account all these things that make this a much more complex situation. Despite the newsflash earned by its $100 million price tag, the historical and contemporary context for Harvard's report is far more crucial in the short term than the potential impact for actions that have not yet taken place. Harvard's report comes 16 years after Brown University, under the leadership of the first black president of an Ivy League university, legendary Ruth Simmons, published a similar report that ignited a reckoning with slavery at elite schools. Brown's actions provide generative uh, proved generative, with more than 80 universities in North America and Europe conducting their own investigations into their past relationship with slavery. Georgetown's own recently documented history of the Jesuit institution's relationship with slavery inspired the creation of a similar endowment that has offered scholarships for some of the descendants of the enslaved people owned by the university to attend the school for free. Again, who benefits from this? And right who is this money? Now, I'm, look, I have no problem with these universities going out and saying, hey, yeah, we did this. Uh, this is part of the process. And if they want to spend their money on these things, that's fine. But you got to understand what's happening here. Um, and I think it's great that we have a situation where we're talking about this in a larger context. But, of course, Joseph focusing back on the South is ridiculous. And the institution focusing back on the South. They've just admitted they had a, a very large role in the institution, right? As important and groundbreaking as the Brown Report and subsequent investigations are, Harvard's arguably carries more meaning in 2022 due to the institution's global influence and the crucial timing of the report's release. Since 2020, at least 35 states have passed or considered passing legislation designed to ban the teaching of racial injustice in America's public schools. That's not what they're doing. They're banning what I just said. I mean, they're, they're trying to get to a point where you're not having politically charged historical curriculum. The idea is to create more activists. That's what they're trying to ban. No more curriculum that creates activists. Let's talk about these issues, sure. Let's do it, sure. But we're not going to create activists out of this. The teaching of America's long history of structural and institutional racism against black, indigenous, Latin, Latinx, whatever that is, Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders and other groups has been labeled as critical race theory, a phrase that has become a leading signifier in the nation's new culture war. See, it's all about politics. Because this is exactly what the agenda is. It's not about understanding, seeking to understand or find reconciliation. No, no, no. It's about power, and it's about creating an environment where you have winners and losers again. And I, and I remember I was at a conference one time where I was invited to speak, and uh, one of the panelists said, well, you know what, uh, when we have these type of things that we're talking about here, this type of uh, uh, reparations or retribution, when we have that for 300 plus years, then we can talk about fair, right? So the idea is to get back at people who had no role in any of this. The assaults against the teaching of the unsavory parts of American history, or indeed, in some cases, of mentioning them at all, are growing in scope and momentum as the, as the election year heats up. But that's not, again, he is being uh, deceitful here. He's being deceitful. 
Many of those attacks are rooted in a conservative anxiety and intent to demonize the New York Times 1619 Project, a multimedia investigation of slavery and democracy edited by the new journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones. You see, what, what's going on here is, yes, you do have conservatives. They're uncomfortable with saying that, you know, uh, the fact is Lincoln, I mean, maybe this whole idea of Lincoln being the guy that we should all celebrate, or maybe there was, uh, you know, the declaration, this proposition nation, maybe you people did not really go far enough with it. What she's pointing out, and I've said this, this is where the conservatives are two sides of the same coin. What she's pointing out is that perhaps, you know, black Americans had a better case for believing in the revolutionary parts of this than anyone else. And the conservatives are saying, wait, 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 you can't say that. I mean, you can't say that at all. We were certainly on board with this. And this is a, you know, we've created this thing. This is Proposition Nation. This is, this is Abraham Lincoln. This is conservative. But they're uncomfortable with being called out for being a leftist, essentially. That you didn't go left enough. Derek Bell, one of the founders of critical race theory, has a school of academic legal analysis and the first black tenured law professor at Harvard Law School, died in 2011. But if he were here, he would perhaps not be surprised by the way in which conservatives have disfigured CRT as a political instrument to deny black citizenship and dignity. But that's not what people are doing. I mean, again, this is incendiary and is typical of CNN nonsense. The civil rights lawyer turned law professor, Bell's work continues to shape generations of black and multiracial scholars interested in a relationship between race and law in America. Bell's best-selling 1990 book, Faces at the Bottom of the Well, The Permanence of racism presently anticipated presently anticipated what white political backlash of the kind that fueled both the rise of President Donald Trump and the successful passage of so-called anti-CRT bills so extreme that they seek to avoid or deny historical truth to protect students' feelings and regulate how employers can talk about race at work. Two things there. To protect students' feelings, so in other words, to create an environment that is uh, is activist in nature and so to create an environment that doesn't have anything to do with education. It has to do with work relationships, human resources, and in essence, the law, right? The Harvard Reports come, comes then at a pivotal moment in American history, one where the nation seems poised to either erase or replay some of the grimmest parts of its past or forge ahead by taking bold steps to build a new world by sharing a new story about ourselves. Instructively, the report documents the historic ties, intellectual, financial, and direct, between Harvard and slavery as an institution that created profit and leisure time, added personal value, and offered direct benefits to generation of Harvard students, faculty, staff, alumni, trustees, and affiliates without ever acknowledging black pain and suffering for the invaluable contribution African Americans made to the university. Harvard not only used enslaved people's labor during the 17th century, but received a third of its financial resources during the first half of the 19th century from a handful of wealthy donors whose fortunes rested on slavery and slave-produced commodities. This is heavy stuff, right? So, yeah, you had slave traders. And you had people that were selling slaves that worked at Harvard. I mean, all this is true. This is why this the treasury of counterfeit virtue, right? For And this is, again, for Northerners, to, it's, it's hypocritical for the North. It's hypocrisy. I mean, but, of course, that's the world in which we live. The most poignant parts of the report, the ones that made me cry, came toward the end. Made him cry. I mean, that's kind of mentally imbalanced, if you want to be honest. That you made you cry because of historical, something that happened in the past? I mean, yeah, you can say, wow, gosh, that's, that's tough. I mean, that's terrible. But made you cry? The first appendix lists more than 70 human beings enslaved by Harvard presidents, fellows, overseers, faculty, staff, and major donors. 
The anguish that I felt reading these names and parts of their stories was magnified as I pondered the gaps in the narrative, the information we don't have about them. I ache for that knowledge, even as I understand this would cause me and others more pain. Why? Again, this seems to be... Uh, look, I can read all kinds of things in history. When I read about um, you know, Irish people, for example, who were kidnapped and brought over to America... And all the horrible things that happened. I mean, I can say, wow, that's, that's terrible. I mean, that's, that's awful. These things are awful. But I wouldn't cry about it. I mean, it's just happened. So the emotional part here, right? It's emotivism. Again, emotion as a powerful tool. It's one of the most powerful learning tools that there is. And when people emotionally connect to something, it becomes an emotional point for them. It becomes very powerful. The bits of biography surrounding the enslaved woman, Dinah who worked in the extended household of President, however, President Edward Hol, uh, Holyoke during the 18th century, is particularly heart-wrenching. Her initial entry into this history is through a recording of her weight as a 51-pound child. A dozen years later, she reappears as a household servant, cleaning one of the familial homes of the Holyoke clan. Dinah's ultimate fate remains unclear. She may have left her position of servitude with the end of slavery in Massachusetts in 1780, but a more definitive answer is still elusive. Okay. Still, the relentless optimist sees the report as an opportunity to have a thoughtful, mature, and necessary push toward national reparations for national for racial slavery. Not mature. That's immature. It's hustling. It's money. It's money. It's power and money. It's not mature. Mature would be not to have these kind of reactions. The candor of Harvard's report, the institution's pledge of $100 million endowment to remedy past wrongs, and the diligence of the committee members and President Bacow, and getting the, this right to offer a model for more thoughtful, invigorating, and impactful confrontations of slavery's legacy in other parts of our country. I hope every school teacher in America takes the time to read the report and shares it with at least one student and friend. Parents, school boards, churches, synagogues, and mosques should do likewise. Harvard has, in its own small and significant way, with its willingness to face the most unseemly and dishonorable parts of its past, taken meaningful steps toward a path of healing. We can only build a new story of America, our past, present, and future by confronting how we arrived at this moment together. And again, that's not the point. Okay, I'm all for teaching everything we can about the past. But this is an emotional plea, and um, it's designed to get money and power. That's really what's happening here. And I think we need to sh it needs to be shown that that's the case. All right. So I wanted to cover this. I mean, look, I think it's great that we're talking about northern slavery. It should be discussed. Everything should be discussed. Everything should be on the table because that's the key to understanding American past. But to call it structural or to do to create activists and to create an environment that's actually more intolerant is should never be the goal. All right. See you tomorrow on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then. <laughs>